So, um, we're in a series called Oikonomica, where we've been talking about money, we've been talking about economics, um, we've been talking about how things like desire drive many of our choices. Maybe if you can just reduce my uh, treb just a little bit, a little, little sharp there. I don't want people's ears to be hurting by my voice. The louder my, I'm amplified, um, the quieter I will speak. I'm not that type of preacher. So you can actually lower me, and then I'll speak up. I'll project more. Um, so we talked about things like desire and how our, our appetites drive our consumer choices, whatever that might be for. Uh, we've talked about value and recognizing the value of an exchange. How much is that, sir? That's $5. Well, I don't know if that's worth $5. What is the value of an exchange? Underlying value, the notion of value is what is worth it? Am I worth it? Is this exchange or service worth? What is, what is the value of things? We talked about systems last week and how um, a system can be used for evil, but it can also be used for good. And Riding on the coattails of last week's talk about systems, today I'd like to talk about power. Power. Now you might think, what does that have to do with me? I don't have power. Um, I, I certainly don't possess power, nor uh, do I want to reach for power. It's funny, I was watching um, the game last night, and um, uh, who, who won, by the way? Sacramento uh, uh, I'm not Sacramento, the Golden State, Golden State Rockets. We won. We won. And uh, I, I didn't catch the ending, um, but somewhere in the middle, they were, they were highlighting the greatest point guards of all time. And the announcer, Mark, Mark Jackson, was, uh, his name was on there, and he was like, I don't belong on that list. You know, uh, They're talking about how Chris Paul is making his way up that list and is going to pass up the greats. And, and the announcer was, I, I really don't belong among them. And I was kind of astounded at that statement that you've just been named one of the great point guards of all time. You've been named one of the greats, and here you come off saying, I shouldn't be on that list. What is it in, that, that, in, that, in our instinct that says, I need to be on certain A-lists? Or what is it that I don't need to be? And I don't know what Mark Jackson is like as a, as a human being, but that struck me, that statement, I shouldn't be on that list. I'm perfectly content being a nobody or a no-name. I'm perfectly content not having to grasp at power. And that, I think, kind of sets the stage for our talk on power today because we are all in our lifetimes either jockeying for position or saying, I don't need it. We're either jockeying to get on the A-list or we're saying, I'm quite content where I'm at, and I don't really need any more. You see, this whole thing about reaching for power, um, you know, I'm not even immune from it. I've been in some circles where there's, there, you can tell there's power plays going on. Yes, even in churches and denominations. And the thing is, the more we play that game, this way lies madness indeed. The more we play that game, especially when we're talking about economics, this way lies madness indeed. Um, in, in the early 1900s, there was a historic gathering of some of the most powerful men in the world. 
and they were gathered at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. Amongst them were Charles Schwab, not like, not like the, the, you know, the banker. Uh, Charles Schwab was at that time the president of the largest steel company. And then there was Arthur Cutton, the greatest wheat speculator. So this is, this is early 1900s, speculation on wheat. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Albert Fall was a member of the president's cabinet. Jesse Livermore was the greatest bear on Wall Street. Leon Frazier was the president of the Bank of International Settlement. And Ivar Kruger was the head of the world's greatest monopoly. A couple of decades later, every single one of these men died in an untimely way. Either they committed suicide, or they went bankrupt, or they ended up in prison. Now, this is not a homily that's against rich people. That's not my agenda. What I am saying, and this is a biblical theme, is that when you combine power and money, uh, power plus money equals something, oftentimes insanity, insanity. When we have so much, you've, you've heard the proverb of the eccentric billionaire, somebody that has so much and they're so odd. They end up being so odd. Power plus money equals insanity. It's a basic biblical principle. I mean, it's not spelled out as such, but I think of the perfect example, Daniel chapter 4. And if I could just read to you a couple of verses. I know we went through Daniel this past summer. And this is the interesting thing that I'm beginning to find in the last year, ever since we've been in Kingdom City, that a lot of the themes we talk about throughout the year, they tie back into each other. Whether it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we live together, or the book of Ephesians is coming back, or even the book of Daniel, these themes tie back in. So Daniel chapter 4, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth during that time, and the subsequent insanity. And here's the story, chapter 4, verse 10. Nebuchadnezzar is telling his dreams to this, this young Jew named Daniel. And he tells him, I had these visions as I was laying on my bed and as I was sleeping, and I saw a tree, a tree in the midst of the earth with great height. It grew large and became strong, and the height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Verse 12 its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit was abundant. And in the tree, in it, was food for all. This is a striking statement to me. Especially last week, we talked about how the world, uh, the percentage of poverty throughout the whole world, as a result of some of the power plays and some of the moves of, uh, like the IMF or the World Bank, drastically reduced poverty. Everybody gets food. It will provide for all. This is a good dream. This is like Bill Gates' um, dying wish, right? This is what we want for the world. It will provide for This is a good dream, but it becomes a nightmare. Why does a good thing become so dark? It continues, the beasts of the field, they found shade. Everybody had their shade. Uh, everybody has a home. Birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. All living creatures fed. But in verse 13, I was looking, and behold, an angelic watcher descended from heaven and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, 
Let the beasts flee from under, the birds from its branches. Leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This is very interesting to me because outside of the Bible, there are ancient Babylonian documents that talk about a ruler, a Babylonian ruler, that actually disappeared for about 10 years. For about 10 years. So according to, you know, the, 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 count, you know, the, the regular you know, cycle of the sun, so 10 years, this person disappeared. But in the Bible here it says seven, but seven is a very round, complete number. And so for 10 years, a Babylonian ruler actually disappeared. And the, 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 the illusion is towards mental illness. Mental illness. And so we have this story here about Nebuchadnezzar. It identifies as Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind, the, the water, the rain of the earth just raining on him. Are you going to come in out of the rain? Do you need an umbrella? No. My beard is all the way down to my belly button, and I'm getting drenched, and I'm wearing a bag lady outfit. It's an interesting story. Interesting story about power and madness, about how when we have everything, we can provide for everybody. A good dream eventually becomes a nightmare. This, I think, is the biblical, um, the biblical message that when we have all this amassed, all this power, it can be a scary thing. And so in your notes, you're going to see that I want to talk today about power in two halves. First of all, power is the same yesterday, and the second half is today and forevermore. True. Earth, our world is a very different place today than it was back then. But at the same time, there's some things that are just the same thing. Um, you know, there's nothing really new under the sun. The same blood that flowed through people 5,000 years ago, I think, still flows through us. The same human instincts that they had back then, the proclivities, the tendencies towards killing your brother so that you could take a step ahead, that same stuff exists today, those proclivities, those tendencies. Power is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. What I want to do today is do a quick survey of the Bible, quick uh, sketch through the scripture to look at this ancient human instinct. And we'll start with this first heading, power is the same yesterday, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Yes, I'm going to do a survey from the beginning all the way to the end of the Bible. And this thing inside of us that wants to reach for the apple, that wants to step on somebody. You know, it's like, there, look at that shiny object in the tree. Can, get over here. I want to step on, can I climb on your back? And you're kind of stepping on their face so you can reach for that thing. And then you eat it. And you're like, this is good, but it'll probably be better together. So let me drag you down with me. You want a bite? And that's how, the, that's how the story begins. The Bible begins. And the fall happens. And the first thing that Adam thinks is clothes. I need clothes. I need to take my own shame into my own control and power. How much, you know, this is a battle for me even personally. Not that I'm naked, but... but Constantly learning to take my own narrative, my own shame narrative, and to kind of control it. No, I don't, you know, uh, I don't have to be so self-conscious or, 
you know, um, I don't have to be so hard on myself. So there's this attempt to take control of his own narrative, and he plucks some leaves and just kind of discreetly places it. And God looks at that. And I wonder if God was upset or he laughed. You're not very well clothed. Let me clothe you. So God has to clothe Adam and Eve because they can't even control their own depiction of themselves. But there's a sense that they're trying to take control of their own narrative. And then it continues in the bloodline with Cain and Abel, the two sons, and eventually the power play. We see that human instinct to step on somebody else in order to reach for the fruit. One brother kills the other. God is not happy because he sees something on the earth. Things are going down and they don't look good. Genesis 2 to Genesis 6, things begin to start going bad to worse, and we see the introduction of this race of people. Uh, I don't know much about them, but they're called the Nephilim. Um, I have this running joke because I think people in Texas are, are just on average bigger people. We're like the Nephilim down here. When I travel to other cities, they're like, what's it like living in Texas? It's like the Nephilim. There's mighty men and women of renown, and people are just... I think, you know, I think people are just taller, you know, generally speaking. So you have the Nephilim. They were called, they're called the, the men of renown. These were powerful men. What did they do? Well, we're not exactly sure. It's almost like, um, they're almost like titans on the earth. Were they good? Were they bad? Hard to say. But what we do know is God was not happy with some of the power plays and things that he was seeing Mighty men of renown rising up from the earth and all of these things happening and God says, I think I need to do something. I need to address this because history is not going the way that I wanted it to. It's not going the way that I thought it would and God causes it to start raining. God brings the rain. Oh, by the way, before that, he identifies one person. He calls somebody named Noah. And in the identifying of Noah, God says, you are going to be one, the first one that's going to go against this trend. You are going to be the one, you're going to be the life raft for the future of humanity that's going to buck the trend when humanity seems to go, be going, you know, going to heck in a handbasket. And as it's going in that direction, and people are exploiting and abusing one another, God appoints or recognizes Noah as one person who's going to be the life raft for human civilization. Some of you in this room are going to be the life raft for this city. You are going to be the life raft for your community, for your workplaces. While everybody is playing the power game, you are not going to play that game. You are anti-power. I'm not saying that you're just going to, you're not going to take any promotions, but you're not playing that game. You are a life raft. You're a life raft where you are. Some of you will be the ones that will be the hope and the future for your place of work, for your place of employment. You will be the one that God is going to reset the mold with. And that's what happens after, after the world is wiped out with rain, after everything is clean, God says, now we can start all over again. And he raises up a Noah. 
a life raft of a human being that's going to save the human civilization. Some of you. He raises up this Noah, and God says, good, we can start all over again. It's interesting that in Genesis 9, verse 1, what does God say to Noah? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where else does God say that? Who else does God say that to? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Who does he say that to? Adam. He says it to Adam. Now he's saying it again to Noah because this is Earth 2.0. And Earth 2.0 is going to be better than Earth 1.0 where it was a lot of glitches and we had this virus that was running rampant in the system. It started out from the fruit and it became this thing and Cain killed Abel and the next thing we have the Nephilim and we have power plays and Earth looked really, that virus really messed up the system. So wipe it clean. Let's start all over again. Earth 2.0 with Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the Earth. Unfortunately, unfortunately, get this. And if you have your Bible, you can follow with me. At the end of Genesis chapter 9, the virus is still there. It has not gone away. And what we see is that there's this kind of sordid story um, where... Uh, uh, Noah, he drinks a little bit too much, and he disrobes himself in the tent, and the result is a kind of debauching, debauching that happens, if you know that word, debauching. You know, I'm not just, I'm not just talking about alcohol, but yes, that too. That there, there's these moments, these lapses, where you are the life raft for your society. You are the hope of your place of work, your business, you are the hope for your family. You are going to go against this virus. But every now and then, we have lapses. We debauch ourselves. We make a mistake, and it allows the evil, allows the darkness to come back in. So in a moment of debauching himself, in a moment of vulnerability, he makes a mistake. This time it involved alcohol, but whatever it might be, whatever it is, that thing that you say, well, it's Miller time, I'm just going to let go, right? Whatever it is, and you end up debauching yourself, we see that through that moment of weakness, I mean, if there ever is a warning in Genesis 9, it's that. You are the hope of the world, the hope of the universe, the hope of mankind, but in a moment of weakness, this whole sordid tale unfolds where Noah is naked, he's drunk, and his three sons come in and observe, and Ham is laughing at them, but then the other two sons, they do this thing, they walk backwards and they cover him. You know, there, there's, some, uh, there's some commentary about this, about um, the Hebrew language there, that, you know, you have his youngest son, Ham, laughing. Look at that, he's naked. Look at that. But the Hebrew actually connotes something, it, it connotes some deeper stuff. It connotes possibly even some sexual tension. So it's a little bit disturbing. But something happens. Something happens and it's almost like the virus enters back in. That darkness that started out from the Garden of Eden, that went through Cain and Abel, that went to the Nephilim, now it's like, I found my way back in. It comes back in a moment of weakness, in a moment of weakness. And when it comes back in, through Ham, we see something happen in the following generations. After Ham, 
In Genesis 10, we see that Ham would have a son. His son, Cush, would have another son named Nimrod. And I've talked about this before, but I want to pack this into today and, and review it a little bit. This Nimrod was, in some ways, the reincarnation, the reincarnation of the dark power that existed in Earth 1.0. Nimrod represented everything that was dark power. A, 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 a biblical historian or an extra-biblical historian, his name is Josephus, says this about Nimrod. He says, Nimrod, he wanted revenge on God. He wanted revenge unless God wanted to drown the world again. Nimrod said, I'm going to build a tower. Anybody know what tower this is? The Tower of Babel. And this tower is going to be so high that I can stick it to God's face and he'll never drown us again. And according to Josephus and according to tradition, uh, Nimrod, he, he actually uh, was a tyrant. And he would, he would control the people. He would control them. And he says, listen, don't fear God. Don't fear God. Don't be afraid of God. He's not going to cause the sky to fall. Fear me instead. Fear me. That's what Nimrod, you know, kind of established this tyrannical, this beginning of this fascist kind of thing. Don't fear God, but fear me. I'm the one that will hold all of your life, death, and prosperity in my hand. And so when it says in Genesis chapter 10 that Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter. He was before the Lord, but at the same time against the Lord. All of these things we take into account. That this Nimrod was, he was the flower. He was the budding of this dark power. If the seed came back in, in that moment of debauchery, through Noah, Nimrod was the full flourishing of this dark power. The tyrannical power had entered back into the world. And Nimrod became not only the builder, we believe, the, you know, the Tower of Babel, but he was also one of the founders, listen to this, of the people of Babel. Babel. Now there is a connection here. The connection is this, Babel and Babylon is not just a coincidence. They are one and the same. Babel and Babylon, they mean the same thing. So what we're seeing here is way before Daniel, way before Nebuchadnezzar, way before this whole Babylon and this whole dream of the tree, there was Nimrod. There was dark power. And dark power existed all through time, and it existed until Babylon and beyond. Nimrod was just the reincarnation of dark power. And what does he do? He says, yeah, he says, sticks it to God. I'm going to build a tower, and I'm going to start this people called Babylonians, or Babylon. And Babylon would forever represent dark power. Dark power. And they build this tower in Genesis chapter 11, and it reaches to heaven, and everybody's communicating and sitting together, and they're plotting how to overthrow God and build this huge tower. And, it, you, you know, they're talking, and they're deciding, and they're having these dark plans and these dark places. You know, it reminds me, it reminds me of, uh, of a scene in the Godfather movie. Godfather 1, in the closing end of the movie, Diane Keaton, she asks Michael Corleone, her, her husband, and she says, now, Michael, please, no more killing. No more illegal stuff. We have to go legit. 
And the thing is, Michael Corleone, Al Pacino, through those dark Italian eyes, he looks at her and he lies. He lies right through those dark Italian eyes. And he says, sure, sure, sure. Kate, is that her name? I forget. Godfather. Sure, Kate. Yeah, whatever you say. And then what does he do? He goes back into the dark room. And they're planning and they're hatching these dark deeds. And she's kind of on the outside looking in. She's in the light. But he's in the dark with these other men hatching <laughs> schemes. And you see, like, somebody bends down to kiss the hand of the new Don. And you see one of his enforcers close the door. Dark plots and dark places. Dark power. Dark power. And I have this twisted mind sometimes. I think, wouldn't it be funny if, um, if uh, Don Corleone, he says to his enforcer, you know, could you shut the door because uh, we have some plans. But all of a sudden, he starts speaking uh, in Korean. So Don Corleone starts speaking in Korean, and he starts saying, you know, he started to speak in Korean, and then um, uh, Tom, the consigliere, he says, Mike, what are you talking about? He's trying to say, but then out of his mouth comes German. And Tom is speaking German. He's like, what's going on? He's speaking German. And, and Michael Corleone's trying to, but he's speaking in Korean. And then the guy who's kissing his hand, he's like, well, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I don't understand you. But then he's speaking Spanish all of a sudden. And the next thing you know, all of the enforcers, they're confused. And everybody's trying to communicate. And at the end of the day, they can't get anything done. They can't get anything done because everybody's all of a sudden not understanding each other. And what do they do? They all kind of just go home. Like they had this plan. We were going to go to the airport. We were going to whack a couple of guys and steal the containers. But it doesn't happen. Why doesn't it happen? Because they don't understand. And so what do they do? They just kind of go home. And it's, it's humorous to me because Genesis chapter 11, the same exact thing happens when the Tower of Babel and they're all kind of scheming and planning these dark things. And God, God changes everybody's language. And they all just kind of, they all just kind of go home. It just it says like it just kind of anticlimactic. There's no resolution. Everybody speaks, and that's the beginning of diversity. And everybody just goes off. And the thing is this: this is the first. This is the first thing that I think God uses to solve this problem of evil in the earth. The first thing I think is diversity, because we think that it was God's punishment, and therefore diversity is a bad thing. Actually, no, no. Diversity is being used here to break up the old boys club. Diversity is being used here to shake people out of their complacency or out of their ruts. Diversity is being used here to kind of break it up because we're thinking, we're thinking, we're overthinking, we're stuck in our dark patterns. Diversity has a way of breaking things up. And so in that sense, I think it is God's first answer. This is the first fill in the blank on the bottom of your notes. What does God use to fight dark power in the world? The first thing he uses is diversity. It's diversity. And I know that many of us here, we come from different backgrounds, different states, different languages, different cultures. It's a good thing, I believe, when we're exposed to different perspectives. We had a great woven group last night. We got to hear stories from people that came from a very different place than I did. California? No, I'm just kidding. And hearing these different perspectives, I think, is the beginning of God's anti, anti-force in the world. But then, 
God realizes, but you know, diversity, here's the thing about diversity, it can't be the final solution. Because if diversity is the final solution, what happens is then we're just going to endlessly, endlessly break off and there's going to be, you know, instead of five nations, there's 50 nations and then 500 nations, 5,000. We can't, we can't have diversity just endlessly break off forever and ever. God says, I need a more permanent solution. What is God's more permanent solution? In the following chapter, God chooses somebody. He chooses a person, and his name is Abraham. And Abraham becomes the father of a nation. As God begins to see that we have Nimrod coming up, the reincarnation, the the incarnate, power incarnate, dark power, God recognizes it's not enough just to have diverse. We need to have somebody that's almost like if you have have an Agent Smith, you have to have a Neo. If you have... You know, Luke Skywalker, you have to, there's a Darth Vader. Just like there is Nimrod, power incarnate, God says it's time, I need, to, I need to rise up one person. And this is the second way that God deals with the world. This is the way that God brings an anti-force. He chooses somebody. He chooses a person. He chooses a person. Now listen, I know in our Sunday school we've been talking about these ideas of election and predestination and all these heavy ideas. But the idea there is God chooses somebody. He chooses you for the purposes of being the anti-Nimrod. He chooses you so that your city, so that your company, your place of work, your family will be the anti-Babylon in the world. That the work you do will be anti all of that, anti-Babylon, all of that stuff, you are going to be the answer. So as God is saying, he's seeing this, he's seeing the, the beginning of, of, of dark power, one man, and he starts this, this, this tyrannical people. God says, first of all, break it up, break it up, break it up, break it up, everybody's speaking different languages, and the second thing God does is raise up an anti-force. Abraham, Israel, you. We are the anti-force to Babylon, to dark power in the world. That's the second fill-in-the-blank, a chosen person, a chosen people. So this is what power looks like. I've done a quick survey from the beginning of the Bible. Quite simply put, there's a virus in the system. It doesn't seem to want to go away. No matter how many times, you ever do that? Like you reformat your computer, and the thing is still in there. The spyware is still in there or something. No matter how many times you reformat that thing, it's still in there. So what does God do? He unleashes an antivirus or an anti-something, anti-program to go in. That's what Israel is. That's what Christianity is. It's the anti-program in the world. And the thing is, this story, it continues all the way to the very end of the Bible. See, we've been talking about Genesis, but now we're talking in the second half. As I wrap up, today and forevermore, we're talking about power all the way to the end of the Bible, the end of the story, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Which is interesting because if you look at Revelation 17 and 18, just look at the subheadings, it says the doom of Babylon, Babylon overthrown. You know, this is interesting. Revelation was written during a time 
when, when Babylon was long overthrown already, it was superseded. It was superseded by the Greeks and the Romans. It's kind of like me saying, guys, church, let's get together and let's plan how we can overthrow Hitler. Let's plan how we can defeat Nazi Germany. Wayne, you're, you're about 80 years past. That, that, why are we still talking about Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 when Babylon is long gone? Why are we constantly having to overthrow Babylon? Because Babylon existed in the beginning of the Bible. It existed in the end of the Bible. It will exist till the end of time. Babylon represents the virus, the virus that's in the system that is harming, that is polluting the anti-God. Babylon represents all of the things that you look at at your company and you say, that's so wrong. But we just turn a blind eye to it and just pretend. No. Babylon represents all of the dark instincts in the world. Babylon existed in the Tower of Babel in the very beginning. Babylon exists all the way to the very end in Revelation 18. Babylon will exist because dark power will exist until the very end. So God, in the end, if you've read to the end of the Bible, what does he do with Babylon? He overthrows it. The great city is finally overthrown. And so what we have in the biblical vision towards the end is basically the destruction of the evil city. And all of us can move on the farm and we can eat Chicken, you know, farm-raised hen eggs that we grew ourselves and we can, be, we can plow the earth. And we can all become farmers. Free trade. Free range. Because we don't live in a city anymore. We don't need cities because cities are bad places where people conspire in dark alleyways and Babylon is the dark city. Is that God's vision? Some people think that. Some people think in, in, in parts of Pennsylvania, there are people who believe this. And actually, they, the way they live is very beautiful. But no. You know why that's not what God's vision is? Because what does God raise up in the very end of the Bible? I heard somebody say it. Say it. Say it. A city. God is not anti-urbanization. God is not against the city. God's not even against people gathering together and plotting. He's like a nosy parent, like, what are you guys talking about? Like, break it up, break it up. Like, God's, God's not against human coalition. God's not against organization. God's not against getting together and making plans. He's not against it. What he is against is that impulse the impulse to overthrow him. The impulse towards darkness, towards exploitation, where urbanization actually is not used to help empower people, but it's actually used to supplant demographics and classes of people, where it's actually used to come in and buy real estate up and just end up, you know, re, uh, revitalizing. It's not, you know, in the end, there, cities can be, they can be tremendous places of exploitation. But God is saying a new city will rise up, a kingdom city, as it were, that operates on different values, kingdom values. The, the lady that is uh, interviewing and writing this article, and she interviewed me, and, you know, we've had some conversations. She's a covenanter, by the way, and 
um, talking about this whole Kingdom City experiment, you know, it's not easy. I think those of us that are in the know know this. It's not easy. But there's something about the ethos of this project, of this experiment, of the different peoples living in a place where we could just say, why don't we just take over, or why don't we just have our own thing set, our own agenda. But there's this consistent bowing of our agendas towards each other. This ethnic group bowing to the agenda of that ethnic group. This congregation listening to the agenda of the other congregation. Why are we doing that? Why don't we just make this easy and just unify it and make our own plans? But why are we insisting on this sharing program or this thing where we're preferring another person above myself? It's so difficult, but the thing is, there's something kingdom about that. Because the kingdom of Babylon says, my agenda... I will not rule by board. I will rule by fiat. This is unity. This is perverted unity. Unity perverted. Everybody will wear the same outfit. We all will follow the same economic policies. These are the rules, and everybody will march to them. Well, God says, break it up, break it up, and he introduces diversity. But instead of each group going off to build their own Tower of Babel, we have a group of people that come together. This is called the church, Greek and Roman, saying, how can we live together in community? How can we find ways to unite, not to un uniform, not to make ourselves the same, but how can we, different as we are, because another vision in Revelation is every nation, tribe, and tongue. How can we, different as we are, come together as a new city, and this new city will not dominate, it will not control, it will not overpower, but this new city will listen, it will prefer the other. The third and last way that God fights dark power in the world is through a holy city. He raises New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem. What is New Jerusalem? What is the city of God? We are the city of God. We are the city of God. We are operating under different assumptions, not the same power plays of the world. We are choosing a better way. In conclusion, if you can just pull up those three last points, just to reiterate, what is God using to fight the virus that has been in this world from the beginning of all time? Three things. First, he uses diversity. Second, he uses a chosen person. I want you to personalize that. He's choosing you to live by anti-Babylonian values. And third, he does this through a holy city, or what I will call holy unity. Holy unity. The diversity comes back together and decides to work together to prefer the other. This is an anti-Babylonian value. Diversity, chosen person or people.